And welcome back to another episode of Dollars and Dragons. And today we have with us Knox. Knox, if you'd like to introduce yourself to our audience here. Hi, um, I'm really thankful that you brought me in today. I'm excited to be here. My name is Knox Weiler Ignatius Burf, and I am an artist and a creator that lives in Los Angeles. I'm the creative director for Hunter's Entertainment and a content creator uh, through the Scabby Rooster and other venues. Yeah, and some people might know you first by uh, your appearance and performances involvement with Geek and Sundry. What was that like? And is that the first thing that you started in that space? Or did you come from a different background prior to Geek and Sundry? I actually started out, I was uh, in Los Angeles from Chicago. Well, I was kind of brought up in the Chicago area. So I moved from Chicago into the Los Angeles area and immediately started working in the film industry. And so I'd spent a lot of time around studios and around a lot of um, film sets, a lot of TV sets. And I had kind of created a close network of friends through a small communal for theater that I had spent a lot of time with. And that was called Dungeon Master. And Dungeon Master was an interactive that was taking place in Los Angeles for many years. It actually started in Chicago over like 35 years ago from a, a man named Bruce Young. It's a very fascinating story. I could do a whole podcast on just that, but I'm not going to. Um, it, Dungeon Master is really close to my heart. And it was an improvisational show. It was Dungeons and Dragons way before the 5e hype kind of like brought um, Dungeons and Dragons back into the forefront with Stranger Things and all of that. But um, some friends and I would do this show and it was uh, kind of filled with a lot of voice actors and a lot of talent, um, the, the voice acting industry. And again, this was also kind of before voice acting kind of like hit its full swell. I mean, people were really excited about video games and interactive entertainment, but it hadn't, you know, no one really understood what it was. And so the show was this kind of odd duck that we all love and we would get together and we would be the monsters and the NPCs and the minions within a dungeon. And then six individuals out of the audience would be chosen to be the adventurers and they would come and the whole audience was wild. They were, you know, we would, I mean, we would have like 50 to 60 people and we would think that we were on the top of the world, you know, and, and that was great to us. Those were magical days. Um, but those 50 or 60 people would come and they would be dressed up as their character. So they were, it was kind of like a LARP light show and they would create these backgrounds and we had these little cards that they would fill out that really didn't mean anything. All we really needed, needed you to do was to come onto the stage and yes, and a character throughout the whole adventure. And so the, it was a lot like Rocky Horror Picture Show where everybody's hanging off the rafters, acting crazy, yelling back and forth at the, the performers. A lot of the individuals that were involved with that are people that um, folks will definitely recognize from the tabletop space now. Uh, a lot of the voice actors that kind of made their way through Critical Role and some other um, some other venues were, were a part of that world. And also the ancillary circles within that, you know, you, you, you'd recognize all the big names, but also the people who supported a lot of the things that happened at Geek and Sundry. When Geek and Sundry started to come up really quickly, were also tangential to that space. In this sort of nexus of the very beginning of what would become, I think, the, the live play uh, for, for, for Los Angeles, at least. I know there were other groups that were doing things elsewhere. You know, the Adventure Zone and podcasting had really brought a lot of this to the forefront. But when the video component really started to get added, that was through Geek and Sundry, uh, I, I feel. Almost immediately, I was kind of tied into doing certain things for certain shows that were happening there. And then my friend, um, so through that show, I had a couple of friends that were very, very close to all of that. And Ivan Van Norman was uh, one of those individuals. And Ivan 
Raven and I have been pretty tight now for far too many years. Uh, I don't actually want to do the math right now because it would probably be pretty mind boggling. <laughs> so Ivan and I became tight. And then through that, you know, I kind of got reintroduced to in front of camera activity at, at Geek and Sundry. Little shows here and there. Um, they were doing some game shows. I did some stuff with Becca Scott. And then eventually I was pulled in through actually shooting. This is also how I ended up with Hunter's work, by the way. But I ended up shooting a lot of stuff at my personal space, the Scabby Rooster, which is something that I created, which was like a live play studio in Los Angeles downtown. That's just a gritty space that's meant for anyone who doesn't have the financial resources to really be able to stream a live play or to create a live play on their own. We pretty much built a studio that would allow you to do that. But in that space, I had actually um, uh, hosted the Outbreak on Dead Second Edition Kickstarter video work and the photo work there. Through that, a couple of individuals that were at that shoot saw all my miniature painting work and had no idea that I was actually involved in that. And I have cabinets and cabinets of things that I've worked on since um, I was very young, actually. Uh, but the, it equates to hundreds of models that are behind glass cases. And, you know, immediately they pulled me in for the Painter's Guild. And so I, I started doing work with uh, Will Friedel, who is absolutely the sweetest man on the planet and uh, super encouraging and really in a lot of ways an outsider to the gaming space. And he'll be the first ones to say it. But um, being an outsider, though, he brings a really interesting perspective to everything that he was involved in. And so we kind of became fast friends and I kept working on that, um, that show for the seasons that it went on. But as Geek and Sundry started to dovetail, helping Ivan with uh, We're Alive Outbreak on Dead. And that was a, a really amazing show uh, with some amazing elements. The only show that I, I feel like uh, Geek and Sundry did in that period that was even more innovative would have been Dread. Uh, what what was done with um, um, Sagas of Madness was, in my mind, where the space is going to be in five years. I don't you know, I don't even think that there's anything else out there that can replicate it right now. And I think that that's a that's kind of sad. But anyway, produced a lot of miniature sets for We're Alive um, Frontier and had kept talking to Ivan about, you know, what was coming next and what was going on. And he had mentioned to me that they were in need of um, some some artistic direction and some some support. And I do a little bit of everything if this monologue hasn't said that already. But I, I like I'm the type of person that is constantly keeping busy and I don't do just one thing. I do five things and I try to do them as best as I can, sometimes to my own detriment. But that's what I do. I started working with Ivan for uh, playtesting and and preparing a few games that were coming down the pipes uh, at that time. Back then it was Icarus, but then soon it was Alice is Missing and Ragnarok and Altered Carbon and some of the other games that they have produced through Hunters. And then in that process, I ended up um, taking on more and more responsibility until effectively I, I'm where I am now, which I, I just kind of blinked and I am the creative director now. That's a whirlwind. Okay. <laughs> Well, you asked um, the question first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did this to myself. Um, let's um, we'll get to uh, hunters because I I definitely have a lot of questions about just being a creative director, and maybe that's just me exploring that because I think transcendentally, or like perhaps like in the future, I'm interested in doing that sort of work. But Scabby Rooster, uh, let's talk about that and how it started, and like how you developed that, and uh, what were your major accomplishments? You think with Scabby Rooster? Yeah, I um, as I said, like Scabby Rooster is duct tape and a prayer. You know, there are a lot of studios out there that have um, pushed themselves to the point where they, they look really sharp now. Years ago, when this all started was started happening on Twitch, 
there were really only um, there was really only one type of streamer where you had the video game stream, and even then, the idea of online gameplay, even through Roll Twenty, hadn't really hit its stride, and, and a lot of people weren't doing that yet. And it was during that time period I I really wanted the little bit of money that I was able to kind of squirrel away and and put it into a space that gave me the same the same feelings that I had when we were doing the Dungeon Master Show. I wanted that community theater space. I wanted that open, um, accessible sort of creative hub where people could gather together and be able to throw things at the wall and not be worried about numbers or, you know, financial backing to a certain point or anything really other than just getting together, having a good time and putting something out into the world that you were not trying to do it for any other real reason. That's where the idea kind of came from. And I have and I live in downtown Los Angeles. So it's a it's an enormous loft space. It's very raw. I've actually built out the entire interior of it. I knew that I could do things that would be harder to do for somebody who was doing this in their living room. So I started to kind of learn about what it took to do things. And every time I was on set at Geek and Sundry or every time there was another place that I worked quite a bit called Twin Galaxies. Um, and that was uh, more video game based. But it, it actually is one of the areas that spawned a lot of the online stuff as well, although they really were never in the TTRPG space so much. There was a lot of technical um, aspects that I learned from from in that space. I had to make a lot of it up. We we ended up taking a lot of webcams and finding ways to hack them so that we could actually get uh, multi uh, multi camera feeds at the same time into OBS. And OBS is an amazing tool, but it's also very complex and it can be very hard to to manage it, especially back then when it wasn't quite as developed as it is now. And so knowing that we could do this, we really wanted to make our own studio space out of nothing. And we tried really hard and we we came up with something that I'm pretty proud of still. Um, and we started to do a couple of shows. Wanted to run a D&D game with my friends for the longest time and we ended up doing total party kills and I pulled in a lot of the dungeon master regulars and kills was a reverse dungeon crawl that's what I've always called it uh, it's it's them playing the monsters and me playing the heroes and chat making the heroes and putting them into the game so more or less it was them defending their dungeon and their dungeon would change and they'd have to move out and they'd have to go find another dungeon and it was resource management and a lot of it was middleman where they were you know arguing with goblins who wouldn't do their job and trying to figure out, you know, what 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 needs to happen next. And we created this amazing uh, show based on a world that I've been kind of cooking for a long time. And we had a great time with that. But then we started to try to figure out how to do other things that hadn't been done at all online at that time, which was, you know, taking the table away and doing LARP, uh, LARP uh, based content. And that was a whole other ball of wax. And we succeeded with Blank Slate and um, Aether House Academy and a few other things that we put together. But the the channel evolved and grew as the um, as the industry kind of grew up around it. We had some amazing sponsors that came in. We were able to grow, and now we're there, but we're more of a uh, kind of a, a gun for hire, as it were. Like the studio, I still stream regularly, but mostly what I do is painting. Um, but we've been using the studio for a couple of different things. I've been currently doing Outbreak Undead. We we did uh, Project Nero. We just finished our third season, and that is currently actually airing on Pixel Circus 
even though we're filming it at the rooster. It's one of those things that like, I think it's difficult for a lot of people to see, like how do these relationships form? But then the way that you, that you explain that, obviously like you're, you're involved in uh, like the proximity is there for you to have the studio and then, you know, be in the same area as all these other creators. But for you and bringing up Gabby Rooster, how long before do you think it was before you had like a regular audience? Was it like right away or did you like port it in from uh, some of your followers otherwise? Or did it take quite a while to kind of grow the audience to where it was something where at least the the lights were being paid for? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it it was a learning experience. Um, and again, you got you have to remember this was quite a few years ago. But when I started out with the Scabby Rooster specifically, uh, Geek and Sundry was at their stride. I think this was like 2013. So like this is this is when Critical Role is just. Um, and so we had started kind of duct taping all this together and trying to create this communal space. Um, and the first time that we streamed, I had done a lot of old school, um, and it, it's not the way that you, I would ever do this again, but like I, I did it the same way I would do a stage. I was, we were writing emails, we were sending things out to people, letting people know when it was, you know, grabbing our friends and family and saying, Hey, you got to come watch this thing. We're trying something new. It's like a stage show. We're going to do it, but it's playing D and D it's going to be live. And the first time we streamed, we had 350 people. Yeah, I know. Well, wait, <laughs> so everybody watched and you know these were the people that supported our theater efforts and all that and we were on top of the world wow this is it this is how it's going to work the next time we streamed and then the next time after that it was like 50 and what we realized was the people that we were bringing in were not twitch people they were the people that would come to a stage show they were the people that you know did have you know uh, a lot of a lot of interest in 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 sort of the entertainment that we were offering but they didn't want to watch us play D&D for four hours you know that wasn't on the table. And back then I think we even think we even went over 4 hours more than once. Like it was it was it, with like one break in the middle that was kind of short, you know. And we learned really fast that the audience for the is is vastly different than somebody that you would bring in for a stage show. You know, if you're going to do that sort of content, it has to be an hour, maybe, maybe two hours if it's something special every once in a while. But if it's regular content, you know, people aren't, or at least at that time, they weren't wired to kind of understand what that was. And so we we went we went about it all wrong but then as the years went on and we kept trying different things we found our audience on twitch and we found people that really supported us and kind of kept the chats alive and things moving you know recruited other people hey you got to go watch this thing we did the social media um, blitz and we really leaned into every tool we could find and tried a lot of things that didn't work and and frankly it just took years to kind of get it right to get the mix right anyone who's coming in now has it a lot easier because there's been a lot of experimentation that's happened that's kind of helped people understand kind of what direction to go into and not to mention now with um, the virtual tabletop tools that are available to people and the video tools that are available to people it's been a short period of time but I don't I think people easily forget how big of a swing it's been in the technological world between then and now. Like these things were the things that we dreamed about having. You know, we dreamed about being able to do this online consistently. Roll20 existed. I mean, Roll20 has been around for a really long time and I love them to death. But the the the, the growth of the VTT um, has exploded, especially in the past like three years. And the tools that people have available to them, the things that they can do to create a beautiful stream. The same thing with OBS and Streamlabs or whatever tool people are using to kind of create these streams, not to mention Zoom, 
Google Meets, Discord, these technologies have grown up around us that we've been able to utilize in new ways. And there are some really innovative individuals that have been in the what I call the independent scene of this world. And that's silly because the whole scene is independent, right? But there's there's there are sort of some indie creators out there that are really, you know, blazing trails for all of us and, and, and cutting their teeth. And I learned from some great people. Uh, anybody who's out there now who's trying to start this for the first time and trying to build an audience, perseverance, patience, those are the two most important tools that you can hone. And, you know, do your research and ask. I know so many people who are more than happy to kind of share the tips and tricks that they've learned along the way. It it, it makes my day when I can tell somebody something that prevents them from having to suffer for a week, you know, and, and trying to like get caught up in cords and, you know, OBS plugins, whatever it might be. If I can help guide somebody down this road and make it easier for them than it was for us, then I've, I feel like I've done my job. Yeah, absolutely. With the sort of invention and the uh, growth of live streaming, the understanding of like what is your marketing profile. So you coming from, you know, a, a bit of a marketing background prior to it, even understanding what is a Twitch user, what is someone who's going to watch these shows has definitely like evolved over time. And we understand so much more about that with our, the analytics tools and a lot of the research that has been done nowadays. So you're definitely right in that. It's not just like throwing spaghetti at the wall anymore <laughs> as it, as it used to be. So that's, that's really fascinating to hear you talk through that for you and moving forward with being with Hunter's Entertainment and moving to the tabletop side of things, the publishing side, how did you end up getting involved as a formal member of Hunter's Entertainment? Yeah, I mean, the reason that I'm in this space is because I love games. And I think that's true for most people. Um, Games have been a part of my life since I was young. Um, I wasn't always the healthiest kid. And so I wasn't able to be as active as others. So I always kind of turned towards my imagination and, you know, the inward world that I was able to kind of create at the time. And role-playing games really helped me. Um, and reading and uh, board games, all, all of that offered me an outlet. And it, it was a blessing to me because I was able to kind of take this wild energy and all of this uh, creative thought that I had and be able to funnel it in a way where it helped me to learn story structure and to understand, you know, character arcs and all the things that kind of have served me really well now. And so my brain immediately starts taking things apart. And I've always been deconstructing the things that I love. And so I've always been walking down this path where I feel like I was trying to be a designer without being a designer and always pushing the thing that I love the most aside because it wasn't practical and making the choice to do this on the side or making the choice to wait, um, you know, and, and I've done it my entire life up to a point and really up until I, I fully leaned into Hunter's Entertainment, even with Scabby Rooster and all that. Those were all sidekicks. I was still working in the film industry. I was doing, I, I'm a prop creator and fabricator and I was working on uh, movies like The Amazing Spider-Man and Wizard of Oz and other things that had happened. And, you know, I was a small wheel in a super big machine. You know, I was the, I was in charge of the brooms for the Wicked Witch. 
Like that's the specificity of my job, you know, and I was being paid a ridiculous amount of money to come on a set every day and babysit brooms and make sure that every broom was perfect and the right broom was in the right hand at the right time. And these were big stars who didn't wait and you couldn't you couldn't mess up at all because Sam Raimi was right there and you, you had to make sure that if you were going to uh, have something ready, it had to be ready at the exact moment that it was needed. Otherwise, the entire day was thrown off and you lost a job. And it was, you know, 12 hour days, six days a week. And I was squeezing things in in between trying to figure it out. And, you know, when I went to college, uh, I, I, I majored in film studies and I had, uh, you know, I wanted to be a, uh, in Chicago. I wanted to at Columbia. I wanted to be a, a filmmaker. Well, the first thing that I did was I was like, well, I'm going to be uh, a stop motion animator because it takes all my skills and it throws it together into one thing. And that's really, you know, I love it. I became very pragmatic about it. I was like, no one is making any sort of living off of stop motion right now. There's maybe three people in the world that do it. And this was also before some big swings uh, that had occurred. Um, I, again, separate podcast. But the idea that I had compromised there and then I had waited to, to really kind of lean into that because I, I decided, okay, well, I'm going to go traditional film because I can get jobs as a commercial director or as a commercial designer and I can make money doing commercials, which was big in Chicago. Well, I spent a year in Chicago after college and I decided, you know what? No, I'm, I'm not going to compromise here. If I'm going to compromise, I'm going to compromise in, in either New York or Los Angeles. Because that is where the, the, the really big moves in the uh, film industry are happening. So one of these two places, and I, Indie at heart, all the way, like I've been talking about this whole time, that that sensibility has been ingrained in me. And I, I feel like, you know, I while I see the value of big studio corporate movies, I want the small personal story where the creator is able to kind of convey their heart into celluloid and put it out there into the world and 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 make a statement and create something that's special and you know bespoke and has every ounce of their spirit infused into it. Needless to say, I ended up compromising again because I was like, well, Los Angeles is going to have a lot more work. So then I ended up in LA and um, that was the compromise that got me into the space. And then the story that I told earlier about kind of how I got through that, I kept stepping back into the game world. I kept stepping back into worlds of theater or film that made me happy as opposed to making me wealthy. And I kept doing it over and over again until, as I said before, you know, kind of working with Ivan. Ivan's the type of person, very rare type of person, who is able to not only spot talent in other individuals, but to be able to motivate it. He is the, probably the best cheerleader uh, that I've ever met as far as somebody who hones in on what you're trying to do and provides you with a platform to do it. I never let up on staying within Ivan's um, view. You know, like we, we kept the rotation of Ivan's world. I kept coming back into it and more and more responsibilities were open because very creative person doing a lot of things has a lot happening, isn't able to do it all. Ivan relies on the people around him. And, and, and that's kind of this ecosystem that he understands. And so I just started taking on more and more responsibility until, you know, what started as, you know, simple play testing and, and coming through and just kind of giving some notes on a game turned into, oh, well, you know, come and art direct this or, or come in here and help us edit this. Or maybe there's something that can be done here for you to project manage this. And a lot of the skills that I picked up along the way, you know, because when you get to a high enough level in the film industry, everything becomes uh, a producing management job because of the money involved. All those skills kind of just translated over easily. And I've, I still am learning a lot about publishing as a whole, but I've been able to, to transfer most of what I've learned on my journey into 
very actionable tools that I can I can focus on how I think some of these games could be made a little better or 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 be um put into the world in a different way. And what I'm trying to do with what I'm doing at Hunters is carry on that legacy that Ivan has established, which is finding innovative games and underrepresented creators and giving them a platform to be able to create something magical that wouldn't have had a chance otherwise. And that's the ethos that I've kind of carried into this. And I'm still trying to figure it all out. Like everything else I've done up to this point, I'm grabbing what I'm finding around me and using it to the best of my advantage. That is, that's a lot. I need to internalize all of that. Yeah, I, um, I feel very similarly because I just, I just transitioned into, uh, both my new gender and this new career. Um, but in the that's last year, yeah, <laughs> do it all at once. <laughs> yeah, just fuck it. Like, let's just have a crazy year. Oh, thank you. Um, but yeah, when I left the military, I said something very similar to you is like, I'm, you know, I'm done compromising. I've done all this stuff, like up to this point, like I was uh, over a decade in the military. And then I, when I transitioned out, I was like, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And it ended up being tabletop and moving into this space now. And a lot of the time I found as the project manager for the vineyard, like I can write something and have it like be good, but it's really just one perspective. And I found so much joy in finding all these different collaborators and these writers and artists that will look at my idea and they'll say, I want to do it this way and make it unique and like bring more color and life into it um, from their own life experience. And I've just found that to be so honestly addictive. I fucking love it. And I am going to keep making games this way and like keep putting out products like that. I really enjoy the the team element of creating games and like game design and that. So yeah, all that to say, I hear you. <laughs> when it happens, it's magic, you know, and um, there is a there's a, a high attached to it. Addictive is definitely the right word for it. Uh, that collaboration, and I, I've again I've worked in a lot of different uh, spaces that are tangential to entertainment, and I've I've been in the you know boots on the ground, a team of three doing some weird indie movie or something like that on a on a Bolex eight millimeter camera. You know, like anything that is like that that is that collaborative force that is small enough and sort of gritty enough, maybe desperate enough to try to get something done, you know, that hunger. And when it's shared by multiple different, it only builds on itself. There are people who do amazing, amazing things alone, who lock themselves away and come out of uh, hiding two years later with a fully completed game, completely realized their babies start to finish. And I really respect that. And you see it a lot in the smaller zine world right now, which I'm addicted to. RPG zines, uh, independent creators, that's where it's at. And I, I highly recommend for anyone who's you know looking at the space, find ways to step out of your comfort zone and try new things, read new things. Even if your friends are sort of resistant, the thing that I hear all the time, and it just breaks my heart every time, well, my friends won't play anything except for five. My, my answer to that is, you know, there are a lot of friends that you can make in the world that would love to play these other games with you. <laughs> Make new friends. <laughs> make, make new friends. Yeah. You can uh, never have enough. Yeah, absolutely. I find uh, in my experience as a, a pro GM, a lot of the time, my players, my community, they don't care what I'm running because they have that they know, like, and trust me. They like to play with me no matter what I'm running. So I've introduced a lot of people to uh, various different systems and games and campaigns and stuff. Unfortunately, it just doesn't bring people in the door as much as uh, D&D does because it's very hard to compete with that that marketing that immense just drag 
in marketing that's taking place for the last however many years, especially with the explosion of 5e. So I wanted to ask about your day-to-day just as a creative director and maybe it's more like a week-to-week for you um, as far as like when you put your time in. I'm very curious about that because uh, me as a project manager and whenever I get someone like yourself in front of me, I'm very Mm -hmm. curious about how it is that you structure things and that's very much a nerd question but that's what this podcast is. It's business nerdness. I love it. Do you want to ask the question or are we going to consider that the question because I'm okay with that? (laughs) That is the question we'll start with and then I will segue from there if you say something that makes me think of another question. Perfect. Um, so when it comes to my day to day, I, uh, again, this is, you know, not something that I read in a book somewhere. It's not something that I've, I've, um, been taught directly. It's through osmosis. It's through working with other people. It's through picking and choosing the things that work best for me. I highly recommend anybody who wants to do this sort of stuff, who wants to either help to manage, uh, tabletop RPG product products, board games, whatever it is, uh, to find the structure that works best for you. It took a lot to kind of get myself to where I am. Um, as far as organization, I'm a deeply creative person, but I think that organization has been the thing that I've had to become very disciplined with. And, you know, no matter how, um, how much of a free spirit you might be, um, there's really no reason for you not to put some discipline into your life. And I understand that, you know, many of us are, are neurodivergent. Many of us have other um, restrictions that would prevent us from being able to fully lean into certain organizational methods. I think that those things all have caveats that allow us to find some system that works for us. So again, I'll, I'll always lean back to the, the thing that I said at the beginning, which is find what works best for you. Um, this is what works best for me. And I'm certainly not saying that anyone needs to follow this or if you don't do these things, you're, you're a failure. Whatever works, works. But my day is a very strange tapestry that I've woven together based on all the different things that I'm doing. And so usually what I do is I I start meetings in the morning so that I know exactly what needs to uh, happen with different folks from around the world. That's another great thing about this industry is that you're not tethered to an office in one city. You're you're working with people from all over the place. And if you're doing it right, in my mind, you know, everyone is remote and is working in their own spaces, but also coming together in in a regular meeting schedule and offering up whatever perspective they've gathered from whatever part of the world they're in. Um, It's so amazing how much we can expand the tabletop world based on our now access to people from everywhere. And so you have international teams. You have teams from every background uh, culturally that you could imagine. And that just makes, I think, things richer and uh, it gives things more depth automatically, no matter where somebody's working with you in. I start my day with meetings and I try to line up at least two different types of meetings. I always try to have a meeting that is uh, standardized uh, on separate days of the week because I want to focus things on certain days. Uh, Mondays are kind of a catch-all for me, which allows for me to sort of um, facilitate other people's schedules. So I'm usually spending just Mondays in meetings, and those meetings are usually online. They're usually organized in a way that allows me to talk to not only people internally, but partnerships. And for at least for Hunters Entertainment, we have so many collaborators. We have so many individuals that we're working with. It's not just the creators who are making games. It's the other companies that we want to work with, because I think a good indie brand is constantly looking for new inroads 
to work with other people, to boost up other groups and to be boosted up. And I think that we all within this industry are stronger together than we are separate. It's a mentality that you don't really find with larger companies um, who kind of feel like, well, we have everything in-house. This is what we're doing. We do not step outside of these boundaries. We don't talk to other groups. You know, we already make dice. We don't talk to dice make. Um, we already have X, Y, and Z thing that we manufacture. Why would we include other people in this conversation? Mondays are full of meetings that are either set up for conversation between team members who might be on certain time zones or other situations where they weren't able to kind of get to things because I don't, I, well, I do a little bit of work here and there. I try to manage, um, you know, personal time against uh, work time. I'm a bit of a workaholic <laughs> and I, I do so many different things that it kind of allows me to be able to do all those things. But I do try to at least go radio silent Saturday to Sunday so that I'm not contacting other people. It might be my own insanity that I spend all of Saturday, you know, editing something or working on something or trying to put together a proposal or, you know, working on a Kickstarter. I might do that to myself, but I'm not going to have anybody else uh, dragged into my madness unless that's kind of our arrangement. You know, sometimes people want a, a Tuesday to Saturday kind of. So Monday is usually the catch up day and I, uh, I, I space out meetings. Most of the time, it's just me um, keeping track of my internal punch list. Uh, I I call them punch lists. I don't know what other people call them, but it's effectively a to-do list, um, things that need to be uh, taken care of. And I try to have priority orders, OneNote, Asana, any of these programs, find the one that works for you that is going to allow you to list out everything that you're working on and the priority of those things. Being able to just see that helps me to prioritize and to make sure that I'm not getting sidetracked on something that is not crucial for that that period of time. But while I do this, and Friday, we were talking about this a little bit before we started the recording, there's a tactile sort of need that I have as an artist to have a little notebook by me at all sides. Uh, at all times. And this notebook is just a little, you know, small pocket size sketchbook. And I filled with weird little scribbles and notes and drawings and thoughts that I have. And usually every five pages, I put my punch list for the day. And so I always have like what I'm supposed to be doing on the day so that if I'm sitting there taking notes or if I come up with an idea and I start, you know, writing, I, I, I'm reminded of where my mind needs to be. Uh, I use those things as touch touchstones that kind of guide me through my week. Um, each day after Monday, I try to have a theme set to it. So, you know, uh, recently Tuesdays have been live streamed. So on Tuesdays, we have been doing production for Outbreak Undead, Project Nero. You, know, you can find a lot of this on uh, YouTube right now. You can go to the Hunters um, YouTube website and you can catch up on our original run. Our original run, I'm so proud of. It was during the heart of the pandemic. It was our cathartic sort of release from all of the nightmares that we were surrounded by in real life. And we created nightmares in our imaginations about a viral outbreak, about zombies zombies that kind of let us understand the period of time that we were in. We did 56 episodes over a year, and we did that regularly on online live one a week. Uh, that dovetailed. We went over to Hyper RPG, and then we're, we're with the Pixel Circus right now. And like I said before, we're doing that on um, through the Scabby Rooster Studios, and it looks really sharp now. If you, you can still go to the Pixel Circus Twitch and catch our most recent stuff, I think, on VOD, but we're going to eventually be releasing 
slightly edited, uh, cleaned up versions uh, onto YouTube here very shortly. That sidetrack is just to say that Tuesdays were dedicated to, and I would spend every you know Tuesday finishing the things that I didn't get done over the weekend, which is my writing time, usually my creative time. And then on Wednesdays, I've been focusing on um, the, the mornings have all been dedicated to Hunter's um, creator conversations, uh, making sure that individuals are taken care of who have projects in the work and just checking in with them. Um, that Those are the things that on Monday weren't on fire, but now on Wednesday, I'm coming back uh, after having done a production um, schedule and finding those uh, creators that have been a little bit quiet, checking in with them, checking in on art assets that are coming through for different books. So I'm doing my personal uh, promotional work for my miniature painting and making sure that I'm also spending time in the paint chair, you know, honing my craft and, you know, usually Twitch streaming or doing um, something else, uh, video creation wise to kind of uh, promote myself or one of my sponsors or something like that. Thursdays through Fridays are all definitely more focused on the technical side of whatever books we're working on and about the promotion of those things. So Friday is the promotional day that I spend because we want to make sure that uh, the marketing department has everything that they need for Kickstarter updates, which is a big thing about Hunters and about how we manage a lot of our brand. We are a Kickstarter company. We use it as a pre-sale device and we use it so that we can raise funds to, to handle the very expensive development costs. We believe in doing our best to pay the people that are involved in our products as best as possible, giving them reasonable um, schedules and trying to figure out the best way to to make sure that everybody profits. All of that said, of course, independent publishing is a tough road. You know, it's it's tight yeah. all around. And so budgeting also is a big part of Thursday, Friday. Um, typically, it's, it's Friday that I focus most on promotional and Thursday I focus most on the numbers. But... Um, all of that is to say these are guidelines and just having those days segmented into kind of what my main job is, especially for hunters, I kind of work all that out. I end Friday usually with another live stream where I'm streaming my miniature painting and then uh, roll into the weekend where I might do some special video production stuff or I might be just spending time with friends and playing games that I haven't tried yet. The one thing that I left out that we've been doing regularly is I've gathered together a playtest group and every Wednesday night they come into the studio space space cameras off and we break down a game, whether it be something that Hunters is producing or whether it's something that we've been recommended through a friend, or maybe it's something that an independent creator has brought to us who just is looking for some advice. And we, um, without fail, get together and uh, we, we, we play some games. And Sarah and Alex and Sloan have been a huge help to me in helping to maintain that group. They are phenomenal in all ways. Um, I highly recommend people find them on socials. If people need links and things, I don't know. You can you can find, DM me. I'll I'll let you know who to follow. To, to no, really... I I know all of them, and I will link them. Um, yeah. Um, I actually work with Sloan pretty frequently. As a matter of fact, they were my graphic designer pretty much for almost all of my projects, including the Vineyard now coming up. They're going to be the layout person, and then Alex is a contributor on the Vineyard as well. And Sarah, I've kind of tended like I've talked with briefly before, but haven't had any personal relationship with Sarah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I've received one comment about you from Sloan. It was just like, I don't understand how Knox does as many things as Knox does. Uh, but that's all that I knew about you pretty much personally coming into this was telling that to me. Yeah, that sounds like Sloan, all right. Um, so, so. 
Sloan is a pretty amazing person themselves. Um, and and uh, I'm excited for the future. Uh, we've we've trained uh, Sloan into a technical direction role. Uh, Sloan, Sloan is a lot like I am, sort of a, a person who's able to do a lot of different things and do them well uh, and try to like figure it out. You know, m- maybe master of none, but like definitely able to do whatever you need in a pinch and um, amazing artist and just a uh, creative collaborator. And so I- I'll give you the scoop right here. Uh, both of them, uh, Alex and Sloan, uh, have been hired into Hunters and they've been brought in to do additional work for us. Amazing. And, I'm so excited yeah. for them. Oh, my God. Yeah, oh, they're, that's they're so exciting. Yeah. So, I mean, Alex is a rising star, I think, in the TTRPG scene. I'm excited to see what he comes up with in the future. His his brain is pretty spectacular as far as breaking things down and understanding how things go. I have like 30-year-in-the-industry 30 30 year designers who have received Alex's edits for copy editing. These are amazing. These are the best edits that I've received. And, you know, Alex just sort of has what it takes and the mentality of both organization and creativity to go pretty far with all this. And then Sloan, like I said, is an amazing artist and a, uh, a sponge, just able to absorb anything and everything and brings a lot of skills to the table. But graphically, um, all the sort of like basket of skills that they're bringing, uh, I, I'm just excited to put all those skills to use and to give them a forum to really just go wild. Yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm personally blown away whenever I like, I give some like basic direction to Sloan and then they come back with like a 90% solution within like a day or two. And then, you know, it's like, hey, maybe like change this or this. And then they just knock it out of the park every time. And they've worked with me on like a couple of stream shows for layouts. And then they did uh, some work for uh, Jasmine Bular for Shakar season two. And then uh, they are doing, it was their first time doing a layout for a book. The comments that I get about the Vineyard's layout is like, this is the best layout I've ever seen. That's what I'm out. Yeah, it's like their first time doing it. I'm just like, okay, well, <laughs> you know, you you're stuck doing that job now. Like, what do you what do you cost? <laughs> What's this going to take? Exactly right. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to the day when I can no longer afford either of their services. You know, mm-hmm. and they go off into the world and and kick some ass. Uh, the, all of the hunters team though is amazing. We've got uh, Marquia McCarty who has uh, recently been doing a lot of really amazing marketing work and has been supporting things. We have been throwing events at conventions and trying to find ways to create networker events and live plays. We had a live play at Gen Con for Misfits and Magic through uh, Dimension 20 collaboration that was phenomenal. Um, Certainly, you know, I I felt like the uh, duck in that group with um, everybody that was on that stage, but I was up there and and it was uh, was a high point of my career to be able to take those swings and be involved in in a game of that that caliber with um, Abria, who is one of the best in the industry, bar none. Come fight me if you think otherwise. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you have aspirations to be a professional GM or a uh, creative really in any way in that in that industry and you're not watching Abria closely, um, you, you're making mistakes. That's really all I can say. I highly recommend uh, everything that they're doing. But Marquia has been setting a lot of stuff up on the marketing side. I've got uh, Michelle Wynn Bradley, who has been helping me with project management. Uh, Michelle's a super creative person, you know, um, a performer. Everybody does 50 things in this industry, if I've not illustrated that already. I mean, one of the best things that you can nurture if you're trying to get into uh, either live play, uh, production studio work, or even just your own uh, game creation is learn how to wear a lot of hats. Um, But uh, Michelle is 
is, you know, doing amazing live play stuff with Vampire and working with us over uh, at Outbreak and the dozen other things that she's doing right now, but uh, also has this brain that I don't understand. It's, it's, it's absolutely like a steel trap when it comes to calendars and events and organization and, you know, spreadsheets that have 50 different people on it, but still able to manage exactly what their schedules are and when things are coming down the pipe. And Michelle has pulled my ass out of the fire more times than I can count just by helping me to um, kind of line things up in a way. And she does it so effortlessly. Uh, it just, I'm so thankful for the support. And again, an amazing event coordinator and everything that we do is marketing, you know, like so much of what we do, like it's 50% creation of the product, 50% marketing, whether it's live play, whether it's, um, you know, social media content, whether it's a Kickstarter, whatever it is, you know, we're either making the thing or we're selling the thing. That's it. I mean, when you really boil it down, that's as simple as it is. And having folks who understand both sides of that and who are doing lots of different things, because most of our employees really, I mean, people don't understand how small Hunters really is. Almost everybody is is working uh, part-time. And that means we only have so many hours a week that we allot to people for the uh, stipends that we're able to pay and the, the amount we're able to pay, you know, a bucket of hours. And we have to work within those guidelines. And having people who are sharp and able to, to kind of pivot and do their own thing and figure this all out uh, in a quick period of time, it's been really, really helpful. But I'm most thankful, I think, the the relationships, the professional relationships that I've made recently that have been overseas and realizing how much talent is not centralized in just the Los Angeles area or just in the New York area on the, you know, uh, East Coast. It, it really is a global industry and a global community that's rising up now. And with where we're at technologically and sort of evolutionary pushes that have kind of put us into this place, being this amazing indie Petri dish where almost anything could be done if people have the dedication and the focus to be able to do it, it is really the golden age. And um, I encourage anybody out there, roll up, roll up your sleeves. Don't wait and start making things right now. Nothing is holding you back but yourself. Absolutely. That is the dream for me in 2023. And the goal that I've set for myself is part-time game studio where I can part-time pay like two or three people you know, on staff, and then we're still contracting out for writing and art or whatever. But having those key players and developing that studio that way um, seems to be a winning formula for you all. And I'm and I'm very happy to uh, just sort of observe what Hunter's Entertainment is doing. Um, it's really, I don't know, maybe it's it's just nice to see the small team mentality really succeed in in gaming when everything that we hear about it, especially it's like big corporate um, in video games. Yeah, it's tricky. Um, you know, I don't want to say that, you know, corporate design doesn't have a place. There are reasons for it. And there are people who are making amazing things. And if it wasn't for Dungeons and Dragons, I don't think the indie groups would have any traction whatsoever. You, we would all be starving. And so it's 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 weird to kind of try to find that balance. Whatever works for you works for you, right? And um, I certainly recommend that people still play Dungeons and Dragons and enjoy it. And, you know, go out there and play the games that you enjoy. Support the games that you enjoy. Even if it's Hasbro, you know, like if Hasbro does well, we're all going to do well in, in a certain way of thinking. That said, you know, when you're when you're thinking about where to put your $50, maybe get the PDF of that new book instead of the collector's edition and spend that $50 on an indie brand somewhere. You know, find a find a game that you think is interesting that you wouldn't normally buy and pick it up. Those dollars mean so much to the small groups. While it's just another, you know, tiny drop in an ocean to Hasbro to an indie developer, 
you you very well could be putting food on their plate and making sure that their employees are handled and paid and all the things that are so important. If you want to keep seeing innovative games made, support innovative games. We have had a lot of success with the things that we've put out. I attribute that to Ivan Van Norman uh, and to the dedication and the skill that uh, Chris De La Rosa puts into the layout and a lot of the artistic vision for the products that we've we've created in the past. And, you know, they were just two people and they had put together Outbreak Undead and that quickly kind of spiraled out into all the things that we picked up. Ivan has this nose and has been able to uh, pinpoint some really amazing creators. Through my time with Hunters, I've become close friends with Banana Chan and Spencer Stark and so many creators, Doug and John from the Kids on Bikes line. These people know what they're doing with indie design. And a lot of that had to be hard earned um, because, again, at the time when these things were rising up, people didn't really know. But no one was giving certain creators a shot in the space because either they didn't see the commercial value in it um, or they didn't believe that anyone was going. I think that it takes a very specialized set of skills to be able to find and nurture those um, those creators that I can prove to be half as good as Ivan is at it. So if anyone is listening to this and you have a game and you feel like no one else is listening to you and you think that it's going to change everything, I mean, DM me. I'm wide open. You can find me on the internet and I would love to talk to you. And at the very least, I'm going to give you advice about your game. Um, I want to play your game. I want to know what you're creating. I want to know what you're trying to do. And I'll be real honest with you, but I'll be very, very respectful of your time. Um, but I, I, I want the industry to continue to grow. And we've had so many successes. Most of our games are any award-winning games. And I don't know any other small independent creator that can say, holding on to so many IPs that have actually been hugely successful the way that our games have and still be what is effectively a six-person team. There are groups out there that have been funded that are doing amazing things, great things, but there's a lot of there's a lot of notable brands that are being used to kind of push games. And and I don't hate that. I mean everybody likes to play the game of the movie that they know, right? I think that the real strength in the design space isn't in those um, IP turnaround games. I, I, and again, I'm not besmirching them. They're, they're amazing. I play them myself. But what I think more often than not, the idea becomes bigger than the design. It should be the other way around. Your design should inform the idea. The idea isn't essential. You have to have it. But once you know what you're trying to do, you should immediately start thinking about how you're going to do it. And what are you offering to the space that's going to kind of make people think differently? Because we as game designers are constantly trying to find the way to hack the human brain. We're trying to find ways to subvert expectation. It's like being a good comedian, you know, or, uh, you know, if you can tell a good joke, you know that it has a certain cadence to it and the punchline is going to make you rethink everything that's come before. And I think good design does a lot of that where, you know, you're expecting one thing, but you come out of it discovering something new, something you weren't expecting and walking away from the experience thinking about that thing. I guess I've kind of gone off on a tangent, but what I wanted to end with on this one is just to say that if you are a designer and you're out there and you believe that you have something special, start playtesting it. Don't wait. Don't wait for a um, company to come by and to offer you money. Don't think that you have to remain solo in this endeavor. The best thing that you can do is put it in front of other people and really listen to what they're saying. That doesn't mean that everybody who has a note about your game is going to be accurate. If you hear the same thing multiple times, really pay attention to that. And have a standardized questionnaire that you're asking people so that they know 
or so that you know, rather, your your data is at least controlled in some way. Everybody's being asked the same. And one of the best questions you can put on there is how much fun did you have? And then rate it from one to 10. And then uh, how often would you play this game? And then ask open-ended questions that don't have a number system attached to it so that people can put in their own thoughts. And then sort of, and make sure to communicate to your play testers that you're not looking for any favors. You want them to be honest. You want them to be clear. But feelings are not on the table here. This is about the game. And if the game isn't enjoyable, you want to know that. Let's shift to talking about arcane arts. I want to get into this. I want to I want to talk about your process and how this came about. Yeah. Um, I didn't expect to be here. Uh, I am, like I said, the whole miniature, we've talked a little bit about my journey through Geek and Sundry and, and, and in yeah. the life space. I didn't start with dragons. My gaming career uh, started with miniature painting. There was a game store that was in the little town that I was raised in. You know, I was I was a military kid, but my my father left the Marines and we ended up more or less living the majority of my childhood in a little town in Indiana. This town had a game store and it was called the Wizard's Keep and it was a basement and you would walk down these long stairs and there's a huge row of books, tables full of miniatures, little sets and all that. And I was a very creative kid with all this artistic energy that hadn't been focused anywhere. And I was just trying my hand at theater, trying my hand at, uh, you know, the, the traditional arts and painting and drawing and, you know, replicating comic books and things like that. And, you know, I was pretty young and, and I uh, was immediately drawn to um, figure painting, you know, the idea that these little models could be built and then customized in a certain way and that you could paint them any way you wanted. And the, you know, the tactile focus of putting something together, painting it and having something finished at the end of whatever painting session you, you, you'd you spent time on would allow you to uh, have, a, have a tangible reward for your work, right? At the time, of course, you know, video games, all that, you would play a video game and you'd get to the end of it and you'd have the experience, which is completely valid. But for me, I was really attracted to the idea of walking away, having built something or had, having uh, made a physical thing out of out of whatever that was. Uh, so I, I immediately started to uh, save up money and buy buy miniatures and paint miniatures, which, you know, depending on how you go about it, it's not as expensive as people think it is. There's a, there's a bit of a misnomer there. Um, there are, especially now with 3D printing, there are ways that you can be uh, very, very frugal in, in, in your miniature painting. Um, but of course, there are some um, very high-end luxury brands that uh, become very expensive and, and are, are cost-prohibitive. Uh, I understand that. But I, I was building, you know, dragons and, and setting scenes and, you know, really proud of all that for years, really. And then when I kind of got into like middle school, I, um, I started to talk to my friends about this. Because it had always been just a solitary thing that I did and no one understood it. And I was called a Satanist on multiple different occasions. Uh, but I, I realized that these things had more of a, a use than just for war games. And I, I sort of knew that because I had seen the books. I looked through the books. I actually owned some of the books because I like the art in them. But I started to play games with my friends. That just kind of informed what I was doing with the miniature stuff anyway. Years go by and I just kept going. I never stopped because it was always sort of my safe space. It was always what I did to relax. It was always the kind of thing that I did to turn my brain off and to meditate. Uh, so I would pick a model, put a model together, paint a model, um, you know, give it away, do something else with it. I really wasn't functionally using it. And then when I started to really lean back into my role playing, I started to uh, customize things for games that we were playing and focusing all that in. 
and I, I, I had always been kind of involved in the wargaming scene. I do play war games. I do enjoy them from time to time. I don't do it as much as I do the role-playing stuff, but I still enjoy them. Uh, there were some skirmish miniature games that I got attracted to. Necromunda has always been uh, a big one. Mordheim is my favorite game of all time. And these are these are games that have story attached to them. So there are charts and things like that that tell stories. And as I've gone through the years, I've realized more and more that these two groups are not so separated, that the idea of what you use miniatures for in role-playing and what you use them for in, in wargaming, it's very closely linked. And in fact, if you look at the history of Dungeons & Dragons, it started out as a, a game called Chainmail. And, um, you know, uh, Gygax and, and the whole team out there uh, in Wisconsin, when they created all this, they, 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 they were playing war games. And trying to find new ways to play war games. That's how this whole role-playing thing kind of came back up. And slowly, the um, the more complicated um, unit regiment mentality of like this army is fighting this army turned into this character is fighting this character. And the the story started to come out more and more. And I feel like what I did with Arcane Arts, this long way to get us to this point uh, of me saying Arcane Arts is meant to be a book that bridges those those spaces and creates something for mainly for the people who are looking for a way to enjoy the miniature painting um, hobby without feeling the weight of what the wargaming world brings to the table, but also having the tools that have never really been created or promoted for those who do uh, specifically role-playing with these things. The idea of character creation, the idea of storytelling within your painting, the idea of using what you spend your time on to then tell a further story. Narrative miniature painting. And, um, you know, I think I, I tongue-in-cheek through the whole book, right? I tried to create something that wasn't a stereo instruction, that didn't feel like it was um, all technical information. There are stories in there. I wrote little uh, vignettes of uh, some of the characters that we paint in there so that you kind of know who these characters are before you even pick up a brush. Now, you can choose to deviate from that if you want. I also put a lot of dice charts in there so that if you don't know, if you have no idea, oh, this color, I don't even know. Like, What do I do? There's so much education out there and really good education, but all the same thing keeps getting regurgitated. Like everybody knows how to dry brush now. Everybody knows how to edge highlight and, and what these things are and, and how you use them that you should thin your paint um and and there's some really great resources on youtube and on the internet you can find stuff on reddit but i wanted to create a book that was focused on the things that most miniature paint uh instructors don't talk what will red signify if i put that on the tabard of the character that i'm painting would that make people think differently of it when it was on the table what if everybody in the group was painted in yellow with stripes across their their banners that that means that immediately these individuals are linked together and that tells a story so all of those sort of uh, color composition and traditional art theory things that get left behind, I tried to pull into this book in an entertaining way. Um, I picked out miniatures. Uh, I, I want to shout out Hero Forge because they've been really great about supporting me through this whole process. I've created inside the book a number of uh, characters that you can you can download like these 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 exact builds you can get them if you have a 3d printer or if you have a friend with a 3d printer you can print them out or you can order them from their website and they'll deliver to you the exact model reasonably priced um especially if you're getting the digital download you can make as many of those as you want uh and so then you can take these miniatures that i created through the hero forge uh interface and you can paint them and and throughout the book i go from uh simple 
simple to complicated. Other than that, these are all uh, Hero Forge miniatures that have different um, lessons to teach you. Uh, we start out with a knight. It's all simple shapes. Anyone can paint this in two hours. And to me, that was really important that we walk through all of the lessons in a way that was approachable, that didn't feel intimidating, that was fun, that kind of gave you the tools that you need. There's a lot of technical information in there, but you can kind of skip through that and get to these um, very clear lessons with pictures and the whole thing. I did all the photography, all the art, everything other than the layout I did uh, alone. And that was my pandemic journey was, you know, building out this book in my spare time to make sure that it was everything that I had wished that I had when I was first coming into this, into this hobby, you know, the best thing I think about arcane arts is that no matter what skill level you come to, you're going to be able to do what I do. I did not spend 18 hours on every model that I show off. I did exactly what you see. Two hours of painting, and you're going to be able to pick up the model and do the same thing, if not better than I did it, because I was distracted when I painted these things. But I didn't hold off, and I was like taking photos. You see exactly what I was creating. It's not my best work. It's not work that I would install into a competition by any stretch. But if you read all the text, that's exactly what it's teaching you to do. These are playable models that you're going to be able to replicate and do in just two hours. I feel like one of the biggest disservices that the miniature painting hobby has done to potential hobbyists is to put this box art on the front of their products that has 30 plus hours of painting attached to each little 28 millimeter figure and saying, you're going to be able to do this. Well, yeah, you might be able to do this, but it's going to take you five years of, of training. And then you're going to spend 30 hours painting one model. Is that really the use of your time that you want to, is that what you're looking for out of this hobby? And if it is, more power to you. Go off, become a competition painter. You know, I, I will be the first one that uh, ogles at your amazing work when it's done. But I think that most people who are trying to get into this casually want some sort of uh, guidance that isn't going to feel like an attack on their abilities. Because when you are discouraged right out of the gate by the hobby, you're not going to continue the hobby. You can do this. Anyone can do this. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter. You. The, Anyone with any skill level, with any ability level, uh, can pick this up in some way. And, and all you have to do is just follow some basic steps to kind of get you onto the right track so that you're not frustrated by the process. And then after that, it's a creative endeavor so you can do whatever you want. The, the road is wide open. And I hope to give people the tools for that. I hope to entertain them while they're doing it. Arcane Arts means a lot to me. Uh, number one on uh, Amazon for miniatures right now. Uh, you can you can check it out. If you want to actually purchase the book and you're, you're interested, I do have Amazon affiliate links that are attached to my Twitch channel and some of the other things I do. You can go to my uh, Twitter and I've got a, a link to it right below my profile. Uh, that does help me out a little bit. It throws some pennies in my pocket. But the, the more important thing is, is that it helps me to keep track of sort of, you know, who's buying what and where it's coming from because I get these little analytic reports and I like keeping track of that. So if you're interested, let me know if you enjoy the book and you, you pick it up, please get a hold of me. And I have a lot of video content that I'm making uh, because again, as we've been talking about, I don't feel like, you know, publishing is only one thing anymore. I feel like it's a multimedia experience and I hope to make arcane arts that as well. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm going to get those links for you so I can uh, put those in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Knox. Um, did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about before uh, we wrapped just arcane arts? Um, uh, well, I, I do want to say that in February, on February 14th, we are starting a new Kickstarter. It is for uh, Silent Falls, which is the Alice is Missing expansion. This is going to be an additional set of cards, almost the same amount of material that you got in the core box to be able to change your game up and to do something new that we haven't offered in the past. Uh, Spencer Stark has worked 
tirelessly. You know, his typical set of very uh, rigid processes to make sure that this is a true expansion to the game and that it doesn't detract anything. You could never pick it up and it would be fine. But if you want to add new elements, if you want to have new suspects and new uh, locations and all of that, this is going to be the expansion to pick it up. But as we always do our Kickstarters, we want to do something unique, fun, and original. So what we're going to be doing is offering what we're calling ephemera from the world of Silent Falls, meaning that we're going to be offering up different tiers of uh, ancillary material that you can pick up to add to your character creation process for the game. And each of these things is a uh, physical from the world of Alice is Missing. So it might be a friendship bracelet with Alice's name on it. It might be a uh, soda uh, top that has a soda brand on it. It might be a train ticket or a, a small ring or something like that that has some significance to your relationship with Alice. And you're going to be able to add that into your character creation process. And everyone at the table is going to have an envelope that they're able to open. And that's going to offer them something that they get to add into their character relationship with the character of Alice and to have in their hand while they're doing this game and texting. Uh, we all believe that this is a very unique experience that this game offers and we love it to death. And we worked really hard to come up with a new way to play that might add something to it without detracting. And this is what we came up with. And we're really excited about the surprises that we're going to get to create for this. And we also think that it's going to make a space for every fan of Alice to sort of share images and thoughts and, hey, this is what I had. Has anybody else seen this before? Because there's a story woven into this, a story that we're going to allow all of our audience to discover together on a journey with us. And we think that the ephemera boxes are going to do just that. Banana Chan is working with us on that as well. So we know for a fact that the interactive experience that we've created is going to be bar none, one of the best experiences that you're going to be able to find out there in this sort of a genre. Uh, so that's going to start on February 14th. We uh, intentionally picked the date and we uh, are really excited to let that into the world. Uh, so please uh, start keeping track of our social media, but we're also going to have links that are going to allow people to sign up for uh, email notification when the Kickstarter goes live. If you want to know more, you can find us online. You can find me uh, at all times uh, through Hunters Entertainment as well. I encourage you to check out uh, everything that I'm doing on Twitter uh, or on Instagram. I know social media is kind of a trash fire right now. So you, you, you can reach out to me any way you can find me. I do have Discord channels on the Hunters Entertainment uh, channel if you want to try to find me there as well. But uh, either way, I really want to hear from people about what they like from what we're doing at Hunters. What if, if you're out there doing miniature painting, if you're using arcade arts for any purposes, let me know what that is. If you're part of a charity or if you're doing anything to help uh, uh, embolden um, youth into uh, this world, let us know. We love supporting uh, charities. If you're doing live plays and you're looking for support, please reach out. Markia is amazing at making sure that uh, the resources are in the hands of individuals that are out there, you know, playing the games that we make. We don't see that as a separate world. We think that anything that you're doing on Twitch or on YouTube has value, no matter how many viewers you have. And we want to support that as best we can. There are limitations, of course, but we're going to do everything that we can to make what you're doing out there creatively with our creative work as successful as possible. Thank you so much, Knox. I guess that's it for today. Amazing. Thank you for having me.